So we are continuing in a series in the book of Luke, and um, I never really asked Leonard about it, it never really occurred to me, but we ended at a really good time to start the book of Luke so that the passages kind of corresponded to the season itself. And he'd probably say, yeah, I thought about that. That's great, you know, because then he didn't have to come up with a sermon series for, you know, the time frame because we're in Luke. But we are, we are continuing in this, this portion. And as I was thinking about this, we have a tendency sometimes, I was thinking about the goodness and the, the, the problem with sort of a, a calendar, as it were, a, a liturgical calendar. And by liturgical calendar, I mean there are um, Christian communions that have very definitive times where they're going to say, this is going to be the period in which we call Advent, and this is going to be Lent and all these other things. Uh, the Protestant or the Reformed traditions kind of um, depending on which branch it was, didn't necessarily uh, continue those sorts of traditions. It depends on which you're, you're in. Presbyterians tend not to. And as I was thinking about one of the, the things that's a good reason not to is that I was, I was uh, reflecting upon the period of time that we're dealing with in Luke, and in my own mind, I was realizing, you know what, it's funny, it just occurred to me how spread out some of the things that are occurring. Whereas if you're talking about them week by week, you could get the impression that everything's smushed together because you're looking at the manger scene and you see everybody there all at once. The three wise men are there and everybody, and it's like it all occurs and then Christmas is over and then everybody gets back to their lives and Mary and Joseph and Jesus have gone back to Nazareth, right? We're not thinking that in our head. We're not thinking, oh, they're not in the manger anymore. They're back at Nazareth right now. But the reality is, is that these, these, these passages that come to us, they're recording human events that have to do with uh, the lives or the, the lives of the people involved, but also the fulfillment of prophetic expectation, the things that are being, uh, the songs that are being sung in praise to God. You've, you've heard, um, you know, uh, uh, Zechariah praise God. You've heard Mary praise God. You've heard, um, uh, uh, other people express their devotion to God. And now, after the birth of Christ, the last at the end of the last passage, we heard about Christ becoming circumcised on the eighth day, which is according to the law of Moses. He was circumcised and given the name Jesus at his circumcision. And now we pick up a passage which... Uh, many days later, according to the law of Moses, he's presented because of the right of purification that every son who uh, the firstborn is going to be redeemed and there's going to be a sacrifice presented. So that's where we are in the passage. And if you would stand, I'm going to read for you Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years before she, uh, I'm sorry, seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Please be seated. So we, um, we see in this passage uh, a few things. Uh, the first portion of it in the first couple of verses is that we see the kind of, as it were, Christ is really the, the, um, the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices that are occurring, but even though he's the fulfillment, he still has to participate in them, right? Um, now, it's important to remember that when we're thinking about Christ, we, are understand, we understand that he is the Son of God, that, he, that, that the Son of God is from all eternity. There was never a time in which he did not exist. He created the heavens and the earth. The Father, Son, and Spirit created all things, and there is one God, but the, these persons, um, they, all are, are, they are all God, even though there's not three gods, they're one God. And so when Christ came, though, uh, the Son of God took on human flesh, and he also, as part of him becoming man, he actually had a, a mind, right, a human mind. Uh, there's, there's an ancient heresy that was the idea that Christ in, had a human body, but like it was God's mind in the human body. So he's just sitting there and just like knows everything, right? But that's not, that's not uh, what we understand about the Son of God. He actually took on a human mind, even though he's one person. And this is not something that I expect you guys to go home and say, oh yeah, I totally understand how that could work where God from all eternity, one person, the Son of God, can also be both a man with a human mind and God with one person being Christ. But it's true. That's what the scriptures reveal. He's worshiped. He actually has, he, he eats. He has, he, he, he understands things by learning. So when Christ is presented, he's an infant. He's like literally maybe only 40 days old at this point. 40 day old Babies can't do a whole lot for themselves. They basically are just completely helpless and dependent upon other people. And he wasn't, 
he he probably didn't even remember the the events being recorded here. Now, in his divinity, at touching his divinity as the Son of God, he understood those. But touching his humanity, do you guys remember when you're 40 days old? Does anybody here have a memory of that? I don't think so. Nobody remembers those sorts of things. You're just carried around. You're changed. You know, you cry a lot and things like that. Um, you're not very interesting at that age. You're just basically sleeping, eating, uh, pooping, peeing, being changed, things like that, crying, whatever. And that's basically what Jesus was. But according to the law of Moses, he had to be, he had to first be circumcised as a Jew and fulfill that righteousness. And now he's being presented, um, and there's a time of purification because we're still sinners. And there's a reminder in the law of Moses that, that even though there's nothing wrong with the fact of having children and that sort of thing, there still have to be presented before God as worshipers that the first person who opens the womb, uh, who's the firstborn, has, is holy to the Lord. Now, the reason for that is that in the Exodus, what happened was that there, was, there were these plagues, and the very last plague was the plague of the firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt died that night, except for those who had put the, the sign, uh, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. You guys remember this? I'm not like just trying to make sure you remember what happened in the plague. Well, God said later on, it's like, hey, I saved you that night, but the Levites, they all belong to me, right? The firstborn all belong to me. They're, they're devoted to me. And the firstborn of any animal, you're going to sacrifice to me perpetually because I redeemed you from that killing. And also, the firstborn of any any person is going to be redeemed by um, sacrifice and also an offering, right? Like five shekels. And so they're they're there fulfilling this, you know, 1,500 years after it's happened, and they are um, they they're actually fulfilling something that, that, that typifies or signifies what Christ does for us, right? We think sometimes, well, of course God loves us. I mean, who wouldn't love me, right? I mean, like, God's probably, like, anxious saying, I wonder if Rich really likes me, you know? Like, maybe if I post something, will he put a like on it? And God's, like, says something, and then, and then he's waiting and says, did Rich put a like on that? Oh, yay, Rich likes me. No, that's not the way it is at all. God doesn't need any of us. In fact, we are objects of wrath according to the rebellion that we have in Adam, and God redeems us in Christ. It actually takes Christ to fulfill this um, to fulfill what what was signified in the lamb, it, like because no lamb could put aside the wrath of God, and so God, Christ here is the Lamb of God now being presented as an infant, receiving a sign of God's um, covenant, as it were, and receiving these these um, sacrifices and offerings that signify the very things that He's going to fulfill, so that. At a certain time in the future, it hasn't occurred yet, but what Christ is doing is he's participating in things that are pointing forward to a point in time where in his death and resurrection, where everything that's happening now is going to be fulfilled in him. But it's important that he fulfills righteousness here. 
And it's important that we understand that these, the, what these sacrifices were for. Um, in this case, there was, there was a guilt offering, which, which the, 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 the worshiper, before they could do anything before God, they had to present a guilt offering for them being a sinner. Just a, the, Here's an, an offering that says, because I'm a sinner, before I go into God and do anything else, I need to have an offering to God where uh, an animal is going to be killed and there's going to be blood sprinkled on the altar to account for the fact I'm a sinner. And then there's sin offerings for other for sins. There's thank offerings. There's other kinds of offerings, but a guilt offering as well. Now, according to, to the, the custom, not just custom like, oh, well, we just decided to do this, but in the law of Moses, there are different kinds of offerings that could be offered in this case, you notice that they have they present two turtle doves, and the reason for that is because Mary and Joseph apparently are not don't have a lot of money. There's a there's there's an accommodation in the law of God that you say you give according to what you can give, right? So they can afford to give uh, a cup. They can afford two turtle doves. I don't know what two turtle doves go for, um, or for that matter, what a partridge and a pear tree cost. But we. This is what the um, the going the, the the sacrifice, as opposed to a lamb, which would be a much more expensive offering, and it depended upon your um, your income to be able to do that. And there's some speculation because we remember that they got uh, somebody pointed out in something I was reading they just got like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? And it's um, they must probably not. It's not like they got set up for the rest of their life. It's not like when, when the wise men came, they's like, hey, great, Jesus has enough money to go to Harvard now or something like that. It was, it was, it was an offering of, uh, that, that was probably sufficient to help them out for a little bit. But remember, too, that Bethlehem was not Joseph and Mary's normal residence, right? Where, where are they from? Where, are they, where do they live normally? Nazareth, which is actually kind of like north, and we think, oh, it's only like maybe 40, 50 miles or whatever. Well, when you're traveling at three miles per hour, um, I've joked around like there's like diesel power will get you anywhere. That's an old Marine joke. Diesel power get you anywhere. Like diesel get you anywhere. Your feet will get you anywhere. Diesel get you anywhere. That's how they got around was on their feet. And you could travel maybe three miles an hour and it took days or weeks to get down to places like that. Now, Bethlehem was probably where they hung out when they were down in that area because it's in the vicinity of Jerusalem. But remember, this is where you got to think about this. They didn't just stay there the entire time. They probably would have, when, when Jesus was born, they presented him to, to become circumcised, and then they had to go back probably th- a few weeks later, so they probably hung around that area and stayed in Bethlehem. Maybe Joseph got a little bit of work, and then they have to come back and, and perform this sacrifice. So Joseph and Mary aren't in their normal place, but they're going to travel back to um, their home after this and live there for a while. But we see here again the fulfillment of these sacrifices and what point uh, what Christ is is pointing to. And now we come to an interesting um, uh, figure here named Simeon who shows up, and they're they're doing their thing right. And 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 again, this is where we we think historically. This is an entire nation. You think that Jesus and Mary, now, now normally we think, wow, there's not too many people here. I can assure you for an entire nation of like a million Jews, they weren't the only people with newborn babies, right, at the temple doing this. You guys following me? Like there's probably like in a nation of 
of millions of people, there's going to be quite a, there's going to be like an influx and the priests are going to be busy doing this. And then Joseph and Mary are, 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 are presenting their child and it's not like they have like a sign that's going Messiah, 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 you know, they're, there's no, there's no um, grand entrance or anything. They're just, to everybody else, they look completely normal. And then suddenly this guy named Simeon comes forward and it, it says here in the, in, the, in the passage, it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and the man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the, Lord, the, the Lord's Christ. And he, and he came into the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the, to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And then he says this, um, he does this entire uh, song. Now, the name of this uh, sermon is actually called the Nunc Dimittis, and it's named after Simeon's song. And these things, there's always these different names that, that, they, uh, in the Latin for these songs, like Mary's is the Magnificat, because it's the, the first word in Latin is these names. And so I was like being clever and just saying, hey, I'm going to be like old school and just call this by this sermon by Simeon's, uh, the, 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 um, the title of the song that it's given. Now I am departing, or now I can depart. He's actually, um, he's, he knows, he's, he's one of these He's, he's a righteous Jew, which doesn't mean he's righteous in himself, but he's devout. And he's actually, it's very rare in the Old Testament for somebody to have the spirit abiding in them or abiding on them the way that Simeon is described here. And he sees Mary and Joseph, and it's not, it's not something that he sees in them naturally, but the spirit reveals to him, this is the person you've been waiting for. Now, it doesn't say that Simeon's old, but the fact that he's saying like, wow, now I can depart, now I can depart, now I can depart in peace, signifies that it probably wasn't like he's 25 and it's revealed to him like a week earlier and it's like, oh, now I can depart in peace. It's like, this has probably been going on for a while. It's been revealed to Simeon, a righteous man, that he's going to, he's not going to see death before he sees the Lord's Messiah. Now, think about this, over a thousand years of expectation that the Lord's Messiah is going to come, and it's revealed to Simeon, he's going to see him before he dies. Now, do you think Simeon just kind of like, is just going to go hide in a corner and do this? He's He's showing up daily to the temple, and he's looking for him. And I can imagine the priests are kind of like, hey, Simeon, what are you here for again? It's like, oh, I'm here to see the Lord's Messiah. They're like, right, yeah, you're going to see the Lord's Messiah. You know, and then so he becomes a fixture after a while. You know, they've got the tour guides going, and they're like, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking. Oh, this is Simeon. Simeon has been told by the Spirit that he's not going to die before he sees the Lord's Messiah. Everybody say, hi, Simeon. Hi, Simeon. Okay, we're walking, we're walking. Okay, over here. You know, so, the, but the point is, is that Simeon is, is probably a fixture in the temple on a regular basis. 
waiting for the Lord's Messiah, he's like anticipating it. And can you imagine that it was probably not always the best thing to be in this situation where he knows that this is true, but a lot of people are probably doubtful of this. It's like thinking, yeah, Simeon's kind of a nice guy, but he kind of thinks he's the Lord's Messiah. Yeah, keep the kids away from him. He's a little crazy, you know? That's, that's in a lot of, we, we, we tend to think that being, um, that, that having some sort of, uh, vocation from God is always going to be like this great thing that we're going to be able to have, that we're going to, hey, I, God's, God's uh, asked me to do this thing for him, and it's, it's just going to be great. And that's not the way it is at all. It's, it's going to be, it's a blessing, but it's also work in the world, which is often hostile to spiritual things, that Simeon is actually, is not only joyful, but relieved in part to know that this is really, this is happening right now. I'm getting to see the Lord's Messiah. And he stands up and blesses him and he sings this song of joy to, to say, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And he's just joyful for this. And we ought to be joyful for the fact that we often think of the time when Christ's advent came that everybody was just kind of like not believing because he received so much opposition from the priests and the, and the Pharisees. But we do see people who were righteous and waiting for the consolation of Israel and that he's actually seen this with his eyes and he gets to be able to be part of the Lord's salvation to see before he knows how it's all going to come come about. He's able to prophesy and sing this song over the Messiah and think about that. He's holding the Lord's anointed like he takes him up in his arms. This is, this is a 40-day-year-old infant. The Son of God from all eternity contracted, contracted this big like maybe 10 pounds at most at that point. I don't even know if they grew that fast, but well, they could have. I mean, they, 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 they didn't receive as much nutrition as we do today, but still amazing to think that he's holding the infant Christ in his arms, that, we, that he's able to, um, to bless God and, to see, and to, to see that it's the Lord's anointed that he's holding. But then he turns in his, in, then, then um, Mary and Joseph are amazed. It says in verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And so you think about that. They're, they know that things are happening, but every, every new thing that's prophesied is like an amazing, wow, this is, this is incredible. Like we're just walking in and this prophet comes up and holds our son and says this amazing thing. And then Simeon turns to them and he, he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's something that's good about this and also disturbing as well. Um, here's Mary. She's probably 14 or 15 years old. And she's, I'm sure she's both bewildered, marveling, and all that other stuff about the fact that she's the mother of the Messiah, right? She's been, it's been prophesied to her. Um, 
but she she doesn't know how it's all going to end up, right? She it's not like she gets the plot ahead of time. It's not like she's lo- she's reading all of this as it's occurring. It's happening in her life that these things are unfolding. And so Simeon talks about an appointing for something that's going to happen and preparing her for the fact that this is awesome, but just so you know, it's going to feel like a sword is piercing you through your heart. That's how this Messiah is going to fulfill his role on this earth. Something's going to happen that's going to cause you such tremendous grief in your life that you're going to be, um, it's just going to, it's going to feel like it's crushing you. Now, we might think, oh, that's not, that's not an emotionally healthy thing to tell somebody. Are you sure you're creating a safe space for Mary right now? Um, you probably should only be telling her things that are going to make her feel good about herself right now. No, this is good because Mary now has, a, has as it were, a sure word from God that he has prepared that this is all under control, Right? Something's going to happen in your life, Mary, and it's going to be tremendously hard, but it's ordained that it's going to happen, right? And so when it does happen, it's still going to be crushing, but at least in the midst of that darkness, she's going to be able to look back on this prophecy and say, I'm prepared. I, I knew this was coming, right? You guys following me so far? It's not like it blindsided her, right? It's not like it completely took her, because imagine the the crucifixion of Christ and completely blindsiding Mary. This is actually a blessing that God is preparing her for the pain that's going to come. And so it's, it's it's a gracious thing that God has through this prophet prophesied to her, as well as the fact that Christ, for us to hear that his ministry is not going to just be one of these things where he comes in and, and makes everybody feel good about themselves. Christ is a divider as much as he is a, a gatherer. He's, he's a divider. He divides the sheep from the goats. He divides the righteous from the unrighteous. And it's often the right, it's, he, he brings in the unrighteous to make them righteous. And those who think that they're righteous remain in their sins, and they're, 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 they are completely opposing him all the time. And so he, he, he leads to the fall of many and the rising of many. I was thinking about that today because um, we often measure our, we often measure rising and falling in very um, short time frames. You guys following me? Like we see the we see the the uh, success of some ministry with large numbers of people, and we think, uh, and, and, and in a certain sense, you think, wow, those they're they're doing really well. They must be doing something right. Or we see small ministries. They say, well, what's wrong? What are, what aren't they doing right that they're not large? Uh, there's actually a there's 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 good good and bad to it, but there's a podcast out there right now on Christian that Christianity Today put out called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," and it's it's about the the ministry of of um, Mars Hill in uh, Sa- Seattle, uh, the ministry of Mark Driscoll. Some of you may be familiar with him. I remember back um, when he was popular and had friends that were like, "Man, I really want to move to Seattle and be under his ministry," and I. I was always kind of ambivalent or thought, 
I don't understand the attraction. I think he's kind of crude and that sort of thing. I don't really understand, would never really understood him that well. But he had this incredibly successful ministry. And I was thinking about it today uh, that it's, it was almost like a firecracker, right? Just this incredible loud sound of heat and light, like people go, whoa, and then it's over. It was like as fast as it went, it was done and left like people, like, well, like firecrackers, people got hurt in the process. And um, there's, there's going to be, there's a lot of ministries that aren't necessarily even me, uh, uh, measured in the shortness of time that Mars Hill rose and fall, uh, rose and fell. But in some cases, it might take decades before things un, um, unfurl. And we need to have, I think we need to sometimes have a generational sense of how successful things are going to be to see how long things are going to last. And in a real sense, the characters that we see here are an evidence of kind of faithfulness over time, kind of hanging in there and doing what God commands you to do, even though, even when um, today, I don't really feel like getting out of bed to look for the Lord's Messiah, right? <laughs> it's like, man, it's five o'clock. I just got off of whatever break they're on in Jerusalem. You know, it's like they're taking a break and it's like, man, I'm, I, I don't want to get up early. But today's the day he gets up and he sees the Lord's anointed. Who knows if that's how it was? But it, there's, there's a sense in which the steady and the normal and the ordinary is what God does extraordinary things with. The ordinary, we think, and by ordinary, I don't mean to sound like any time in which God's spirit is involved, that that's not just amazing, but it doesn't always feel like, you know, um, you know, spirit fingers, right? Like, ooh, look at that. Look, what's going to happen? Hey, we need, to, we need to have somebody come in here and do something amazing and choreograph something cool because we want to be flashbang. We want to be awesome in this church and that sort of thing. We want to try to present what we think is the ordinary preaching of God's word that by God's spirit equips you to do, to live your ordinary lives, and that's okay. I mean, it's okay. Not, we, we don't have to go out there and we don't have to be world changers like thinking, hey, what am I doing to completely change the world today? Maybe today I just go and I, I, I'm obedient. I do the things I'm supposed to do. The next day I get, in, get, get up and I do the work that I'm supposed to do and I work with my colleagues and that sort of thing. And, um, and they tell you, wow, you're such a kind person. I, I don't understand, like, you're such a kind person. How, how, how can you be so kind? How can you be so, you know, like, why is everybody else so, so mean and why are you so kind? You know, the, just the ordinary work that we do, and it's extraordinary work that God does through his grace and the ordinary work that we continue to show up and we do this and we equip, uh, we equip, equip each other and generations continue and continue. And for thousands of years, people are r- raised up to praise God. And, and so we see that in here. We, we see the final um, evidence of that in, in this uh, prophetess whose name was Anna. What a great name, huh? Daughter of Phen- Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. Asher. Asher was one of the northern tribes. And it's just interesting to think, wow, 
I guess they weren't completely wiped out. There's people that could actually remember that they were from, that they, they somehow somebody from the tribe of Asher, if you guys are following the, the, the history of the, the Old Testament, what happens is that the, um, the, the, the northern kingdom, which contrib- con- consisted of the 10 tribes, excluding Judah and um, Benjamin, and then the Levites were down in the southern kingdom. But Asher was in the northern kingdom, and that was sacked in the 500 BCs-ish. I can't remember, it was 587 or something like that. Um, I think that's when it fell. And they ended up losing their identity as a people. That's why they were called Samaritans. They were just kind of a mixed, you know, ragamuffin kind of like mixture of, of different kinds of, of uh, you know, foreign nations and that sort of thing. And, uh, but this, this woman knew she was from Asher, so maybe that person ended up in the southern kingdom, was off in the exile and that sort of thing, but she, could, she knew she was of the tribe of Asher. And it says that she, was, um, she had lived with her husband for seven years after she got married and then was a widow. Now, the ESV has made a decision for you in terms of translation, which is what translators do. They decide how they're going to translate difficult passages for you because you guys don't have, you guys don't know, we, we all don't know how, know how to naturally just read the Greek that's in here. But there really is a question as to whether it says in there that she was a widow for 84 years after her husband died and now she's seeing the Christ or she was 84 now. Like, you following me? Like she was married for 77 years, and now she was 84 years old. She was advanced in years. It says she, she lived for many days. It was a nice way of saying she was really old. But it's possible that she's either 84 years old, which is pretty old, or it's possible that she's like 105 years old, which is really, really old, right? And she, um, because... Again, women got married pretty early back in those days, like 14, 15 years old. So assuming she was married for seven years, her husband dies when she's 21. That would be 21 plus 84 is 85. But even if she, was, uh, if she had been a widow from the age of 21 till 84, that's 63 years of being a widow, which is a pretty long time to be um, a widow. And it talks about... Um, the fact that she was completely devoted in service. Now, just like anything else, we have you guys ever used the expression that you visit somewhere so often that he says, oh, I practically live there, right? You ever heard that before? You don't actually think that if somebody says, oh, I go to that, I, I go to that place so often that I live there. You think, really? You've got a home there? You, you actually live in that place? And if Anna for... Anna, for her entire life, had fasted and prayed for 63 years, she wouldn't have lived, okay? She would have to have eaten during that period of time. But the point is, is that she was so devoted, she was so given to the service of God that it's expressed that this is what characterized her life from the time that she was a widow, that she was always serving God and serving others in the temple and praising God in, 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 in a ministry of prayer, and so it shows her devotion to God during this period of time that she was completely given over to devotion. And, um, and that's how she lived out her days for, for, from the time that she was in her early 20s. And, 
and then she ends, she ends up praising the God, praising God for, for accomplishing the, the, the promised redemption in Israel. And so, you know, one of the things I want us to, t- a couple of things I want us to take away from this passage, obviously we need to remember um, Christ being the fulfillment of all these expectations, that's, that's a really important thing that we understand, that these Old Testament saints, we, they didn't have the benefit of looking back at the cross of Christ and seeing God's redemption accomplished. They were looking forward to what God would promise, that, that God had promised that a prophet would rise among you, that a king would come. And then there's even the, the prophecy of a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, so they're all looking forward. They don't understand how this is going to happen. Even the prophets that came before us, they're all writing for our benefit, longing to peer into this, but they're, they have this hope and expectation. And yet they were still devoted to God in his promise, and they were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And, they're in, and, and now it's among them, and they're rejoicing. But I also want you to appreciate the devotion of a life well lived in the service of the Lord to long, to, to, to elderly years, that people who continue into that are to be praised and to be, um, to be lifted up and to be looked to. Uh, it's really, I'm really excited and really pleased when I see a young person with devotion and fervor to God. It, may, it makes me happy. But there is a quality to someone who has served God for decades and decades and is still walking with the Lord that is what we ought to be holding up, right? In this culture, what we tend to do is we tend to prize the, the young and the youthful, right? That's what we, we put forward in terms of all of our, our our ads, all of our things, all of our culture is around youth culture and, and lifting up that which is actually, you know, we hear that thing that the, uh, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Well, beauty in humanity is kind of like a flower. It's, there's like a, a window, right? And then suddenly you're outside that window. In today's culture, that's, all, that's the only window that we focus on, right? Whereas the scriptures and a lot of cultures focus on the fact of, wow, that's a life well lived. That person's wise. They've been around for a long time. And what do we call them? We call them boomers, right? So what do you know? You're old, right? We, we, don't, we don't have respect or, or, uh, or really kind of uh, one of those things where we aspire to have achieved that longevity to be continuing to continue the race so that when Paul says, I have fought the fight, I've continued the race, I've, I've, I'm almost there, right? To continue to plod forward. And I was thinking about that because, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, used to run PFTs all the time. And you saw these guys that would sprint like right at the thing. And then I knew, you know, like I wasn't that fast running. I knew I'd run down almost every single one of them. And hardly any of them would be in front of me at the end because they were, they were good for maybe a quarter of a mile. But, um, you know, three miles, they weren't going to make it. They were going to make it, but they were going to probably end up like f- four or five minutes, six, seven minutes behind me when I finished, when I finished only a three-mile race. Well, the Christian life isn't even a three-mile race. It's more like a marathon, 
where sometimes it's all you can do because your, your legs are hurting so bad um, just to continue to walk forward and say, right now, all I can do is stand. I'm going to stretch a little bit and I'm going to keep going, but I'm not going to quit, right? And the good thing about the Christian life too is that you're not alone in it. We're all in it together, right? But we need to remember that it's, it's, a, it's a race that we run together and it's to the end, and it's often, it's sad to say, I was talking to somebody about this, I was expressing about sometimes the dangers of middle age is that you become a little bit meh about a lot of things. Like, eh, I'm getting a little bit less enthusiastic about things. And you can see why some people get really crotchety and mean in their old age. Uh, and you almost have to sanctify that meh within you. Like you want to treat life like there's not anything that you want to do exciting uh, you, want, you don't want to have excitement in things because you need to continue to press forward and you still need to have fervor for the things of God because the, the, the goal is still out there and we still need to be moving forward. We need to be seeing people like Simeon and Anna. We need to be seeing the elderly in our church and, 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 be, and be lifting them up and saying thank you for being an example of, of consistency and, and pursuing Christ. And we need, to be, we need to be encouraging our children. This is part of why I was um, saying this today. It's like the fact that you're here on a regular basis, you're actually demonstrating to your children the importance of being in here week in and week out. Really today, as inconvenient as it seems, as tired as if, oh yes, even today, we're going to continue to stand and we're going to continue to move forward even on the days when it doesn't feel like the best day to be doing that. Even on January 2nd, when like, you know, I was talking to my daughter today, it's like, I don't really like that. Like, this is actually, for me, it's like, it's kind of the bummer time of the year where you're like, it's like, man, we got to take all the decorations down. Now I got to get back to work and everything else. It's sort of like, you, am I the only one that feels that way? Every the, the new year is like, okay, the new year. And then the day after it's like, oh man, now it's like, I got to get back to normal work. Well, even on days like that, you continue to move forward and you continue to try and have excitement. You try to have zeal for the things of the Lord and you continue to press forward. And it's not all because we're working it up within ourselves. It's all because Christ has come and his spirit's within us. And he is, a, he is a savior worth pursuing and following because he's out there as our forerunner, as our captain, having prepared the way, having taken death and, and guilt and sin upon him so that we can continue to move forward even on the days when we don't feel like it. We can continue to follow our Savior by his strength and moving forward instead of giving, uh, giving into the temptations of the flesh to just leave aside this thing, to leave aside the narrow path and to go in the broad way of destruction. We have a great Savior. We have a great high priest, a person who was held in his, who, who was held as a, an infant in a prophet's arms, praising God for the fact that salvation had come. And now having seen it at the other side where Christ crushes the power of sin and death on the cross so that you are no longer guilty in your sins. You are no longer slaves to, to sin. And now you have this great captain your high priest who is on high interceding for you at this very moment because he cares about you 
And he wants to see you, his bride, brought in perfect and presented someday. We can continue to move forward. And even on a day like today, say, you know what? All I can do on a day like today is stand. And I'm not going to be super excited. I I just don't know what it is. I can't really do, but I'm at least here. And I'm going to ask God to do something that I can't do in myself and in my flesh because I know that the Savior that I worship is an awesome God who has saved me from my sins and I will continue on so that someday, like Simeon and Anna, I can look back at all the great things that the angel of the Lord has been good to me all my days. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we do thank you for the testimony of the saints that testify not only to your, your greatness in terms of the accomplishment of your salvation, but we, we also ask that you would give us a, just a sense of that in our own lives, that even on a day today, like today, just to wake us up a little bit spiritually, to say that, yes, a new year has dawned, the, Chris, the Christmas time, the time of vacation is drawing to an end, but that's not the that's not the goal of our life, is just to have um, good food and, and presents as awesome as they are, or to get to sleep in every day as great as that is, but to be a Christian is such an amazing thing. And we thank you that even in the midst of the ordinary, the, the sometimes boring or the, the mundane, that we have Christ that we're bringing into those situations, and we ask that this new year would be filled with uh, a sense of the glorious nature of being a Christian. And so we pray now, and, um, and we, we, we look forward to a day when, when drudgery will come to an end because we will see the accomplishment of all these things. But for now, we ask for strength to continue. In Jesus' name, amen.